Okay. Thank you, Jessica, and thank you for having me here. This is, uh, I've been in Colorado for 21 years. I've taught at uh, CU, um, and this is my first time on this campus, which is just bad. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm delighted to be here tonight. Um, and it's nice to see Jessica and also Scott Johnson, former students of mine. So this is really, really quite pleasant. Um, I want to talk tonight about uh, sort of both aspects of what we're seeing up here. Matthew Barney on the left, and we'll get to Elle McPherson in, in just a second. Um, let me start off by talking about this campaign. Uh, in 1968, Black Glamour uh, launched one of the most memorable ad campaigns in modern history, the What Becomes a Legend Most. This was a series which ran until 1994, and it featured glamorous black and white photographs by Richard Avedon, um, and later by Bill King, of legendary older and even forgotten celebrities wrapped up in these luxurious black mink coats. We see uh, Hollywood, Broadway icons ranging from Ann Miller, Marlena Dietrich, Myrna Loy, Betty Davis, Joan Crawford and Carol Channing all posed up against a fairly simple text. In fall of 2005, just last year, uh, the campaign was revived with 42-year-old Elle McPherson, uh, but she pulled out of her purported $1.8 million contract with the luxury fur company after PETA, uh, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, sent her the following threatening letter, quote, by making yourself the new face of fur, for Black Glamour, you're also making yourself a top target for PETA and animal activists around the world. When you make money from such a violent industry, you must also carry their baggage. Now, surely, Elle McPherson knew this already. Uh, her image, her body has been branded to sell everything from watches, Omega watches, to underwear. Um, this is Elle McPherson Intimates, which we see over here on the top right to tanning spray and milk. She's part of that Got Milk campaign. Um, she's been up to this since the mid-1980s. And she was obviously chosen to be Black Glamour's uh, contemporary cover girl um, because of her public cachet. She is a recognizable, legendary, popular culture celebrity. This isn't surprising. Uh, Elle McPherson is a supermodel. Um, which means her image and her body have been elevated to particularly iconic status in contemporary American culture. But what I want to talk about this evening is how and why artists like Matthew Barney, whom we see here on the left, have also become celebrities, and how and why celebrity itself has become sort of the iconic marker of cultural importance in today's art world. Note how Michael Kimmelman, art critic for the New York Times, declared Barney the most important artist of his generation. Now, while Barney might not be the household name uh, like Van Gogh or Andy Warhol, he is definitely the art world celebrity of our time. He's the subject of numerous books, articles, shows, reviews, as well as celebrity websites. And if you're really interested in this, you've got to check out cremasterfanatic.com because this is an amazing website full of sort of a faux celebrity worship at the same time. I'm going to talk a little bit later um, um, about a dig that goes on in this website, which is all about Matthew Barney. 
he is followed by fans. He's photographed everywhere. He is imitated by worshipful cultists, and I'll sh show some of this Matthew Barney art a little later. Um, he's a former J. Crew model. He also was a model for Gap. Um, and as a former model, he is well aware of the relationships between image making, product placement, and celebrity. Being partnered with avant-garde musician Bjork uh, sort of adds to his celebrity status. And recently, I'd say in the last three years, he's often referred to as Mr. Bjork, which kind of tells us about her status uh, as opposed to his status in the last few years. Here we see him in a variety of guises, um, caught by fans up there at the right. I, I love the photo here because this is Matthew Barney and Bjork going to some sort of opening, and here's the photographer in the back going, gee, I don't know, is he worth a celebrity Photoshop or not? Um, she is, but I can't decide. All right, now, as these sorts of images and photographs show us, the contemporary currency of celebrity obviously relates to the mass-mediated conditions of the past century. Indeed, one definition has it that celebrity is essentially a 20th century phenomenon, a condition controlled by the vast world of the media. Celebrity relates further to the modern era's steady social and cultural focus on the individual and on individualism, um, which is easily demonstrated here in all of these magazine covers from the last couple of years. In fact, it's kind of interesting to compare the layout of magazines over the past century. Note the difference in magazine cover design during the so-called golden age of magazine illustration from the 19-teens through the 1930s. Um, mainstream magazines ranging from Good House Housekeeping to Vanity Fair to Fortune. to Harper's Bazaar, all lured readers with really distinctive designs, original typography, striking artwork. Today, one critic remarks, the art of the magazine cover has been vanquished by celebrity worship and by artistic considerations that are limited to how much retouching the celebrity headshot requires in Photoshop, and how many headlines can be crammed in before the cover looks too busy. Um, yeah, indeed. Uh, the result, a world in which it's difficult to tell the difference between Playboy and Harper's Bazaar without cracking these magazines actually open. And frankly, I'm not so sure there's even a difference when you do that. Okay, now, however much celebrity is embedded then in individuality and, and obviously dependent on modern mass media, most of all, celebrity is related to issues of power. Joshua Gamson, a sociologist, discussed this in his book, Claims to Fame, Celebrity in Contemporary America, in which he writes, celebrity is a primary contemporary means to power, privilege, and mobility. People in diverse industries all recognize this, such that the power of celebrity orchestrated, especially in the entertainment industry, um, has spread rapidly into other industries, um, including, Gamson writes, fashion, architecture, grassroots politicking, literature, art, medicine, academia, and politics obviously politics. Barney's media exposure, which we see here in um, various art industry publications, um, is a perfect example of this. 
Likewise, audiences of all kinds understand this when they seek out celebrities um, and fantasize about the freedom of fame and its riches and about the distinction of popularity and attention. These fantasies and desires are increasingly realized among the public itself today. Um, and I think you may know some of these folks here, as celebrity and fame are ever easier for any of us to actually acquire via electronic networks. You've all, I'm hoping the students in here at least, have heard of Lonely Girl 15, um, Emelina, Lazy Dork, who's heard of Lazy Dork? Who's pulled down any of Lazy Dork's videos? Oh my God. Uh. <laughs> I feel like a pariah here. I'm the only person who knows Lazy Dork. This guy's huge, really big. Um, uh, Lazy Dork, okay. These are virtual stars uh, viewed by millions on YouTube. How many of you have heard of YouTube? Okay, all right, good. <laughs> A uh, hugely popular video sharing site um, started up less than two years ago, recently sold to Google for $1.65 billion. Right. Uh, Lazy Dork, we see him over here on the top, uh, was usually seen on his site. You can, you can see these. You can go home and watch YouTube for hours. Um, usually seen wearing an old blue bathrobe, uh, most often danced and rapped and reviewed movies and reviewed movie drinking games and made really, really awful jokes um, on one video. And all of the videos were filmed by his girlfriend in their condo in Miami. Uh, on one of his videos, he announced that he was running for president of YouTube and declared, don't forget, this is a popularity contest. Now, liberated by his fame um, or his celebrity, or maybe just intoxicated by his celebrity, uh, Lazy Dork, his real name was Richard Stern, quit his job as a prosecutor with the Miami-Dade County State Attorney's Office uh, and a few months ago moved to Los Angeles to be a professional poker player. As he put it, I loved being a lawyer, but there are other things I want to do. Okay, now, the point here is that it isn't that today anybody and everybody can be a celebrity, uh, like this brand of tomatoes, celebrity tomatoes. I mean, they think that's pretty obvious. And plenty of critics have taken up the subject of how this apparent mass democratization of celebrity has somehow cheapened fame and devalued the superstar status and significance of celebrity. Uh, in the early 1960s, for example, the historian Daniel Borstein bemoaned celebrity as a, quote, human pseudo-event, in that the celebrity was known for being known, for not having actually done something, done something important, done something heroic, um, something worth celebrating, in other words. I think what's more interesting is how fame and celebrity are no longer understood as something mysterious, um, something unknowable, something impossible for us mere mortals to grasp, let alone achieve. I think rather contemporary audiences recognize that celebrity is scripted. It has a narrative and that there are certain institutional frameworks and modes of production and then like any other system, it can be analyzed and it can be appropriated. This recognition or this deconstruction of celebrity has taken place gradually over the past half century. 
simultaneously with the dramatic increase in visual culture itself. And what I'd like to do tonight um, for the remainder of my talking here is I'd like to talk about various art world icons, uh, most of them also called geniuses, also called visionaries, um, who have helped shape and direct this culture of celebrity to their advantage and also to a different um, understanding and recognition of what the art world is all about. And I want to start by talking about Jackson Pollock. Now, Pollock used his coverage in Life magazine, uh, especially this coverage, August 8, 1949, to really catapult his career. He was already known at this time as an abstract expressionist painter in the New York art world, especially because of his breakthrough earlier in 1949 with the drip paintings. He works on the drips from about 1949 through 1951, less than three years. But Life Magazine's media exposure made him a household name. Uh, look at the subtitle, Is He the Greatest Living Painter in the United States? Sounds like what Michael Kimmelman is saying about Matthew Barney. Um, Life's answer to that question was typically sardonic and sarcastic and condescending. But that's because that's how Life Magazine's writers wrote. Everything in Life Magazine was condescending and sardonic. Um, Time Magazine, for example, Time, Life, and Fortune, all published by Henry Luce. Time Magazine labeled Jack the po uh, Jackson Pollock Jack the Dripper. <laughs> and in this Life Magazine article, he was described as a dribbler, uh, as in he dribbles the paint on with a brush. Okay, This is infantilizing Pollock. Um, they also said cigarette ashes and an occasional dead bee sometimes get into his pictures inadvertently. And Pollock himself was sort of described as a slow learner. Um, quote, finally, after days of brooding and doodling, Pollock decides the painting is finished, a deduction few others are equipped to make. Okay? So, but, but none of this really mattered, all right? Condescending, sardonic, press is press, good or bad. And this is a color spread in Life magazine, the dominant post-war magazine of the era. This article generated 532 articles, uh, letters rather, to the editor, which is an incredible amount. Most of them were similarly sardonic and condescending, but again, that doesn't really matter. The important thing is that Pollock himself uh, bought in to what was happening with this construction of celebrity and apparently bought a stack of copies of the magazine. Uh, one biographer observed that he kept a stack of copies of this issue of Life magazine on a kitchen shelf and made sure that everyone saw it. Now, this gesture is reenacted in the movie uh, Pollock that came out in 2000 with Ed Harris, and it's really uncanny the way that Ed Harris has sort of taken over Jackson Pollock um, with all those gestures and all those activities. The article continued onto another page, which I've got here on the left, um, which showed Pollock painting. Um, and it was these sorts of big black and white photos, and of course the photos that Hans Namath produced in 1950, um, that also had a huge impact on Pollock's image. Um, they showed a new, liberating, exciting way to paint, a way to be in the painting, which is what Pollock says, quoted in this uh, 1949 Life magazine article. But it also shows this very brooding image of Pollock himself, cigarette dangling from his lips, 
legs crossed, arms crossed, a real tough guy dressed in sort of blue denim, which would be the same sort of iconic model of 1950s movie stars, James Dean, Marlon Brando. And it was that sort of image, as much as these huge, energetic, abstract expressionist paintings, that made Pollock a post-war cultural icon. In fact, for a lot of artists, this was the post-war avant-garde image that they adapted or adopted to be, in a sense, macho, tough, savage, freewheeling. It's no surprise that in the 1980s, artists like Julian Schnabel and David Sally adopt the, the, the label neo-expressionist and really pointedly say, yeah, we want to be art historical like Jackson Pollock. Um, we could also talk about how Life Magazine's interest in Jackson Pollock um, was less about the construction of his personal celebrity than embracing him and his style of painting in terms of a particular ideology that Life wanted to express, um, making sure that American art in the post-war period was on the same trajectory as American politics and American economics. Um, so Pollock, in a sense, represented the liberated, freewheeling, American artist, so free that none of us may understand what he's up to, but at least in America, we supposedly allow this kind of freedom of expression, as opposed to those in communist countries that make artists paint people on tractors. <laughs> All right, so ironically, he celebrates his celebrity, but I don't think Pollock actually controlled his celebrity, at least not the way that we'll be talking about Matthew Barney in a minute. Elvis is another 1950s cultural icon, and he's really how I got interested in the subjects of celebrity and fame. In the mid-1990s, I became intrigued with how Elvis's image, and I've got various examples here, was still dominating American popular culture, despite the fact that the guy died in 1977. And most Elvis fans do believe that he did die in 1977. Um, the plethora of Elvis stuff that we see here, figurines, playing cards, lamps, clocks, mugs, t-shirts, even on the far left, an Elvis Love Me Tender dream camera. Um, all of this stuff is bought and owned by fans. And what I came to realize as I was writing Elvis Culture, which uh, Elvis Culture, uh, Fans, Faith, and Image, comes out in 1999, was how fans actually are extremely important in shaping and directing the culture of celebrity. Now, in the mid-1950s, and also shaping and directing Elvis's image in general, in the 1950s, of course, Elvis becomes fixed uh, Elvis's image becomes fixed in American popular culture, national popular culture, after he appears on a number of television programs, Ed Sullivan, etc. But the orchestration of this mass media visibility was directed by a tremendous fan base that Elvis had already created over about a two-year period throughout the South and extending all the way to California and up to Colorado. Um, fans catapult Elvis to fame. Mass media just makes it more. I show some examples of Elvis with fans on the far right. Today, there are more fans than ever. There are over 500 fan clubs today. There were fewer than 20 when he died in 1977. 
Um, there are 750,000 annual visits made to Graceland, um, which until 9-11 was the second most popular house tour um, in the United States. Uh, it's probably number one at this point. Uh, tens of thousands of fans visit Graceland during Elvis week. Uh, which is in August. He died on August 16, 1977. And many of them participate, as you can see from the images on the right, in the all-night candlelight vigil, gathering at the gates of Graceland uh, with candles and then sort of snaking their way up the driveway where they pay their respects to Elvis at his gravesite in the Meditation Gardens. Now, a lot of critics suggest that Elvis fan culture, or fandom in general, um, it signifies only cultural emptiness, that these people are crazy, all right? They're over the top. And yeah, we look at a, a room like this, um, and you know, you kind of, this is an older man um, in his early 60s, um, and you know, you wonder. Fans are mindless. They're manipulated by mass media and popular culture. Why do they do this? They're crazy. They're over the top. Popular culture is an opiate of, uh, of the masses. And in fact, this is only in about the manipulation of capitalism and marketing in general. Um, Theorists such as Stuart Hall and Janice Radway suggest something a little bit more sophisticated, arguing that audiences, in fact, receive information and understand it in multiple ways. All right? It's not simply that we are washed over with popular culture, but we interpret and reinterpret text, images, and objects. And that was, of course, the way that I really wanted to approach Elvis culture and fandom. I'm not an Elvis fan. I wasn't an Elvis fan. I didn't want to talk about me. I wanted to talk about what makes celebrity. Why has Elvis remained a celebrity in American culture? And I became really interested in how Elvis fans negotiate and renegotiate Elvis's image, multiple image, and have been doing so now since the mid-1950s. And Elvis's image is absolutely multiple. Uh, the rockabilly rebel of the 1950s, the sort of teen angel that we see. Elvis joined the army in 1958. A lot of fans um, particularly admire Elvis the soldier. When he got out of the army, he continued to make pretty awful B-movies, so he was, in a sense, a B-movie star. Um, goes to Vegas in the late 60s and uh, performs many, many times in Vegas. So he's Elvis, the Las Vegas superstar. Has some sort of weird infatua infatuation with Richard Nixon. Um, sends him a lot of letters, wants to be an FBI, uh, FBI agent, actually wants to be in the DEA. Um, Nixon invites him over to the White House one night. Um, he's also sort of a, uh, a drug icon himself. Um, Elvis's body contained at least 32 different drugs. Um, and then he's Elvis the Dead Icon, which has been the subject of great books, for example, by Greil Marcus. Um, what I want to argue is that Elvis's image and many of the art world celebrities that I want to talk about tonight uh, is absolutely ambiguous, unstable, complicated, and contradictory. And that celebrity, in fact, is driven by ambiguity and instability and complexity. And it's the instability and complexity of Elvis's multiple images um, that provides an ideal site for 
as I do in Elvis culture, really thinking about uh, conflicted American attitudes about race, about gender, um, about class status, about faith, and about fame itself. Now, the art world features a lot of similar fan-driven projects that center around issues of visual instability and complexity, like Vincent van Gogh. Uh, van Gogh died in general obscurity in 1890 at the age of 37. He apparently sold one, maybe two paintings in his entire life. Um, you know, he, he was a general deviant, a social outsider. He was regarded as a pariah. He was a suicide. Within two years of his death, though, there was already the understanding that he was a misunderstood genius. Already, the term genius was being employed in art criticism by 1892. And today, more than a century after his death, Vincent van Gogh is really reified as an art world saint, um, as a visionary, as perhaps a martyr to the cause of modern painting. Um, he's certainly the subject of innumerable biographies, catalogs, exhibition, reviews. Um, he has his own art museum in Amsterdam, which we see here, bookstores, etc. He's the subject of uh, intense uh, discussion about the price of his paintings. Uh, Van Gogh's are certainly regarded as art world blue chip stock. Um, irises, for example, uh, dating to 1889, sold in 1987 for $54 million, uh, which then set an art world record. In 1990, the portrait of Dr. Gachet that we see on the right, which was painted just a few months before he died in 1890, um, in 1990, it sold for $82.5 to a private collector. It's interesting, that shift from 54 to 82 um, in just a few years. Van Gogh cultural tourism and marketing are, I think, equally impressive. Um, artist tours group here um, on the left offers the opportunity to, quote, follow in the footsteps of Van Gogh, and, and you wonder how far that really goes, um, and to paint and to sketch where he actually did. People go to Arl and go to the cafes that he frequented. A bed and breakfast in that town has recreated his bedroom, a lot of the painting that he made um, of his bedroom. Um, people visit his gravesite. He's buried next to his uh, uh, brother, Theo. And they also make pilgrimages to the field where he shot himself. Now, Van Gogh marketing um, is, is really amazing. Um, handbags, coffee mugs, refrigerator magnets, and the usual stuff, T-shirts, umbrellas, nightlifes. I thought the action figure over there on the bottom was, was particularly interesting. <laughs> The best book on this phenomenon is Natalie Heinich, H-E-I-N-I-C-H, -H, uh, The Glory of Van Gogh, An Anthropology of Admiration. Uh, it came out in 1996, The Glory of Van Gogh. And Heinich is a French anthropologist and sociologist who wanted to figure out uh, how did this culture of admiration happen 
and how did it happen so quickly after his death in 1890. Um, so she spends the book explaining how his art world genius was really constructed very quickly after his death um, and has grown into the sort of um, commemorative mania um, and commodification that has been more typically associated in the 20th century with the entertainment industry that, as you can obviously see, has spread into the art world. Natalie Heinich argues in this book, The Glory of Van Gogh, that the Van Gogh effect um, is especially influential in the contemporary American art world or the contemporary art world in general, where madness is seen as an important dimension of artistic genius. I think it's interesting how Barney here on the cover of Art News is cast as sort of a brilliant wizard of odd. And madness is also aestheticized as style. All right, so you've got Barney wrapped up in some sort of weird fabric over here on the cover of Planet. Now, the artist, of course, who understood the dimensions of celebrity and artistic genius better than anybody is Andy Warhol. Um, he absolutely understands celebrity and the construction of celebrity probably because he wanted to be one so desperately ever since he was a young child. Um, he spent most of his career trying to make sure that he had become an important art world celebrity. He was fixated on Shirley Temple as a child. He stalked Truman Capote in the early 1950s. Um, his much desired uh, portraits that we see here, literally churned out by the thousands um, in his New York studio, arranged from portraits of tyrants, um, that's the Shah of Iran on the right, tycoons, Hollywood movie stars, rock stars, art critics, Henry Geltzahler over here on the bottom right. Their celebrity made his celebrity and vice versa. Warhol was incredibly prolific. It's estimated that he produced over 35,000 paintings, um, which is pretty amazing considering he doesn't really start painting until about 1959, um, and he dies in 1987 um, rather early. If he worshipped celebrity um, in almost a quasi-religious way, the paintings resemble religious icons. Uh, Warhol was, in fact, a fervent uh, and devout Catholic. Um, he also knew how sinister celebrity really can be. His portraits, I think, are both riveting um, and disconcerting. Uh, we can't take our eyes off of Andy Warhol's portraits, but they're also very uncomfortable, very unnerving. Now, I think this is because Warhol had this really keen understanding of how celebrity is manufactured and why. He worked in commercial illustration throughout the 1950s. He was the top paid uh, commercial artist in New York in the 1950s. That's how he made the money that allowed him to purchase the townhouse um, on the uh, Upper East Side where he created so much art. If any of you had the chance to see the wonderful four-hour Rick Burns documentary on Warhol that was on PBS, um, I think it was September, um, it was really good and I think it's out on video as well. Anyhow, Warhol knew that fame is conditional that fame is, of course, fleeting, uh, but it's also fluid. Uh, his famous quote, in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes, no more, no less. You know, it's an interesting sort of time that he's putting on uh, fame and celebrity. Like feminist art historian Linda Nochlin, he was intrigued by constructions of 
fame, celebrity, greatness, and genius in modern art. In 1971, Nochlin publishes the extremely influential, widely read essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists in Art News? Her question, is, of course, was rhetorical. Her question was to sort of set up the argument that great artists are constructed in art history, and artists like Van Gogh, Pollock, and Warhol are great because they're claimed as such by the art world, by art historians, by art museums, by art collections, um, by the art market. Likewise, the concept of genius. Uh, since the Renaissance, genius has been associated in particular with the youthful virtuoso, the idea is that you're born a genius, it's innate. Nochlin argued that these sorts of arguments um, in her analysis of a largely male-dominated art world, a male-dominated educational world, that these sorts of arguments were used to suppress and ignore the presence of others in the art world, women and others. Um, and that they're also used in a very uncritical manner the assumption of natural or innate ability um, absolutely ignores the manner in which greatness, genius, these words are used to construct who's powerful in a particular industry. Both Nochlin, writing in 1971, continuing a career as a feminist art historian, and Warhol, creating these portraits, are doing their projects at a moment of incredible transition in the art world itself. Um, especially in the art market, and especially in terms of the escalation of art market prices. Last week, this portrait of Andy Warhol's Mao sold at Christie's for $17.4 million. This is one of 10 large-scale paintings that Warhol painted of the former uh, chairman of the People's Republic of China. I find it kind of interesting that it was purchased by a very wealthy Hong Kong financier. The original price for the painting um, was probably about $25,000. And again, it was one of 10. Very large paintings. Uh, smaller versions of Mao, uh, about a foot by a foot, sold in 1986 for about $5,000 each. This work is being called today historical contemporary, which is a really nice way of sort of making sure that Andy Warhol is both historical and also hip enough to be contemporary. So those who buy into the Warhol market can hedge their bets. They're guaranteed they're buying something that's significant. Christie's auctions have been absolutely amazing in recent weeks, if you've been following them. Um, Christie sold a half billion dollars worth of art in two and a half hours two weeks ago. Um, you know, Gustav Klimt's uh, Portrait of Adele sold for $135 million. Pollock's number five, this is a really small painting, about four by eight. Uh, 1948 painting, $140 million. De Kooning's Woman Three in the middle, painted in 1952, $137 million. Jasper Johns's False Start, 1959 on the right, $80 million, a steal. Now, a lot of art critics don't pay much attention to this or have disdain for this or just can't make any sense out of it. Robert Hughes says, quote, the price of a work of art is an index of pure, irrational desire. Okay. But 
David Gallinson, who is an economist at the University of Chicago, has a different sort of idea. He published a book earlier this year based on a series of articles that he's been up to um, titled Old Masters and Young Geniuses, published by Princeton University Press. And he charts how art market prices are, in fact, related to, and this seems pretty obvious, uh, to the importance of the artist, him or herself, in the history of art to how the artist, in other words, is constructed as a genius, as a celebrity. And he demonstrates this by relating prices to how often artists and their artworks are discussed and illustrated in art history survey text. So he provides tables, he's an economist, um, and charts that show also that the peak prices for a particular artist fall within a five-year period. Not all artworks garner the same high prices. The 1977 de Kooning that we see here next to the Mao by Warhol uh, sold last week for $27 million, not uh, $137 million. So what accounts for the fact that it was $110 million less than Woman 3, which sold for just a few weeks earlier? Um, why? Because it wasn't painted at the peak moment of de Kooning's abstract expressionist career. It was painted in 1977, 1952. Now, as an economist, Gallenston is really trying to develop a uh, unified field theory of creativity. And whether or not you want to buy into this or not, he's definitely part of a huge stream of art market analysts. Like Art Price. Dot com, which calls itself the world leader in art market information. You can see all of this on the web. And artnet.online. It is a magazine which provides information on the art market, on art market trends. It has a price database um, of some 180,000 artists. And you can pay money because all of this costs uh, about $29.95 a month. And you can do 10 searches on particular artists and find out whether or not you're getting a deal, can get in on a deal, et cetera. And I think for folks in the Matthew Barney market, this is really helpful. Especially since Matthew Barney, since 1997, has been declared among the new blue chip artist. In 1997, this installation, Transsexualis, uh, sold for $343,000. It didn't include the walk-in cooler, and you had to assemble it yourself. <laughs> Good luck considering what this all entails with the petroleum jelly, etc. But this was a steal compared to the prices on some of the photographs. Uh, Her Giant 1997 photographs sold two years ago for $265,000. Remember, photographs are multiples. These aren't single. These photos, uh, Cremaster 4, The Isle of Man, and Envelopa from Drawing Restraint 7, uh, sold for $230,000 and $144,000, respect respectively. But I think what's important about Barney is that his art marketing and, of course, his art world celebrity involves more than just selling this art. He is himself an outstanding example of the contemporary art star who drives his own stardom. And this makes him different from 
Pollock, for example, certainly Van Gogh, because he controls as many facets of the art world and the art market as possible. He's a sculptor. He is a photographer. He's a performance artist. Most of all, he directs his spectacles. He is the producer and director of his film productions. Now, Barney was born in 1967, um, grew up in Idaho. Many of you probably know his biography. He played high school football. He was on the winning state championship football team, um, went to Yale for college, and modeled for J. Crew to help finance his tuition. He shifted from pre-med to art, but stayed focused on the body and stayed focused on issues of physical exertion and athleticism. So his Drawing Restraint series, and I know that Drawing Restraint 9 is coming here in just a few weeks, the Drawing Restraint series started in 1988. Um, this is when he is an undergrad at Yale University. And it focuses really then on shaping muscles through body work. Um, the understanding that resistance makes muscles larger and stronger, as any athlete knows, and the realization that form of any kind can actually be shaped, or cannot be shaped rather, unless it struggles against resistance. Um, his body is central in his drawing restraint projects. Um, his body is used as an illustration of this sort of synthesis uh, or system of creation. He draws and simultaneously restrains his body in order to shape and create form. As he puts it, resistance is a vehicle for creativity. For his senior thesis, um, and I'm sorry these images aren't, too very, aren't very good, uh, for his senior thesis, which is called field dressing or orophil, um, and this was installed at Yale's Payne-Whitney Athletic Complex, um, he climbed the walls of a, of a padded studio naked and then raised and lowered his body over a huge vat of petroleum jelly <laughs> that he smeared over his eyes, nose, mouth, and genitalia. Now, What's interesting, I think, about this is he videotaped it all. It wasn't just a temporal performance that was over 87 minutes later. But he made a video, and that video is shown in 1990 at his first group show, and the folks who saw it started some buzz. It really set off the kind of critical acclaim that would follow him to the present day. In other words, from the start, and he says this is because of his career in modeling, Barney has demonstrated a brilliant um, analysis and a brilliant, I think, com uh, command of using the art market and understanding art market trends to his own advantage. He knew that you could not possibly have us just talk about these brief temporal performances. We want to see the body. We want to see the vat of petroleum jelly which he continues to use um, in other projects. And then here's transsexualis again. Um, so he continued to produce sculptures. I think it's important to remember that Matthew Barney is first and foremost a sculptor. His works are about form. And these sculptures are modeled out of tapioca and petroleum jelly and bottles of human chorionic gonadotropin, or HDH. CG, um, which is a hormone produced by the placenta. Believe me, I had to look this up. This isn't something I just casually knew. Um, and you can see the HCG being injected into the tapioca petroleum jelly 
reclining form over here on the right. And again, this is about athleticism, bodybuilding, using all of that athletic stuff in athletic centers in various forms to talk about form, shape, resistance, muscle mass, etc. But this is merely practice run for his larger ambitions. And that, of course, is the Cremaster film cycles. An eight-year multimedia film cycle of five films um, produced from 1994 to 2002 for a total of about six and a half hours of running time. And not created in numerical order. The first one is Cremaster 4. Um, and then he segued to number one, number five, number two, number three. The last one, Cremaster 3, is three hours in length. Now, the Cremaster series is based, as Barney put it, on the life cycle of an idea. Uh, his interest in particular in the human embryo's moment of physiological limbo before the gonads either ascend or descend to create the female or male child. The Cremaster is the name of the muscle in the lower abdomen that is used to retract the testicles, helping to keep them warm and protecting them from injury. And apparently everyone who works on his film crews has to figure this out right away because he explains what the Cremaster is, is in long and excruciating detail. Cremaster 4, 43 minutes long, set on the Isle of Man, one of the English Channel Islands, um, played by Barney himself, who is the Isle of Man, so he sort of became this topographical landscape that was punctured um, and explored and filled. Um, features the sort of tap-dancing satyr, Matthew Barney, and a series of motorcycle races, which are pretty feverish. The Isle of Man has actually hosted a motorcycle race every year since 1909. Um, one critic described it as part vaudeville, part Victorian comedy of manners, and part road movie. Uh, art in America critic described it as a masterpiece of 1990s art. Cremaster One sort of looks like a Busby Berkeley musical from the 1930s, uh, but also evokes Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will um, and propaganda from the 1930s as well. It features a chorus of... Um, of uh, girls dancing on blue astroturf in Boise, Idaho's uh, Bronco Stadium. And the performer Marty Domination, who works sort of in a Goodyear blimp above the dancing chorus girls. This is 41 minutes long um, and sort of guides and directs the entire spectacle. The last film is Cremaster 3. Um, which features Barney as the entered apprentice to the architect. The architect is played by Richard Serra, the sculptor. And both of them are working on the construction of the Chrysler Building um, in New York City. The film has a lot to do with Masonic fraternal symbolism, Celtic mythology. Barney wears um, Celtic plaids uh, and a lot of dental trauma. Um, there's a really excruciating, very long scene where Barney's teeth are yanked out in a dental chair. That's why he's wearing that cloth stuffed in his bloody mouth. It also uh, takes place in the Guggenheim Museum, in part, 
Um, and you can see the apprentice scaling the uh, various levels and walls of the Guggenheim. Um, and it features Aimé Mullins, who is a fairly well-known athlete and model whose legs were amputated below the knee at about age one because of a bone deficiency. Um, and she plays Cheetah Woman in Cree Master 3. Um, and they designed special glass um, uh, legs for her, and you can see her wearing these on the right. The film references Gary Gilmore, um, who is the protagonist of Cree Master 2. And it ends with a coda linking back to Cree Master 4, the first film in the five film series, back to Isle of Man, back to sort of the beginning of the cycle. So there's no beginning, there's no ending, there's six and a half hours of Cree Master. Now, I think there's a tendency to get lost in all of the detail and the minutia of these Matthew Barney films, which are overwhelming in terms of their visuality. They may be rather strange, even decadent, but they're really compelling and it's hard to take our eyes off of them. But I think what's important to keep in mind, despite all of this imagistic overload, is Barney's continuing interest in the body, in the physical and sort of bodily cycles of generation and regeneration, because he continues with that, with both the Cremaster cycle, which he's finished with, and the drawing restraint cycle, which he continues. The last Cremaster film, as I mentioned, is the longest. It's three hours long. It's also the most elaborate. It was followed by Barney's solo exhibition at the Guggenheim in 2003, and the publication of a, uh, a catalog that was thicker than a lot of phone books in this country. Um, and it was like all of the Cremaster films, accompanied by gallery shows of sculptures, photographs, and drawings, which are sold to finance the films. So the art market work is really about financing the next project. Cremaster III cost the Barbara Gladstone Gallery, um, which has largely directed, uh, produced Barney's work um, for the last uh, 12 years, uh, $4 million. To recoup cost then, uh, Gladstone's gallery sells stills from the footage, props used in the shoots, even the storyboard uh, outlines. Uh, uh, the films are not available on D DVD. The films are not available. Um, they are only available as video art. Uh, and they're only available in limited editions of 10 each, which have long sold out, originally marketed at about 10,000 each. Um, in 2000, for example, a laser disc of Cremaster uh, 4 excuse me, sold for $380,000. So, I mean, I know a lot of students, and it's interesting on websites, are, I want to see the Cremaster series, I want to see the DVDs. They don't exist because Barney really treats the films themselves um, as video art. There is a 90-minute film called The Order, um, which you can get on Amazon.com for $29.95, which features the last 90 minutes of Cremaster 3. And there have been a variety of uh, little bits and pieces of some of the Cremaster films on Art 21, for example. And I showed this because this is an example of a, um, of a work that's sold in order to finance the Cremaster films. And there's The Order, the video or the DVD, rather. 
All right, the most recent film, uh, Drawing Restraint 9, which came out last year, is being marketed in much the same way. Produced in 2005, it's been followed by three different shows in New York, also at San Francisco, and one in Europe. Um, this was preceded by Drawing Restraint 7, which is a three-channel video installation featuring satyrs, rams, kind of wrestling in the back of a limousine in Manhattan, um, which you could see on... Uh, an installation at the Walker Art Center a few years ago. Drawing Restraint 9 is probably the most commercial work that Barney has been up to, released theatrically, um, and features Barney and his uh, partner Bjork, who uh, get on board this Japanese ship, a whaling ship, in Nagasaki Bay. And on deck of the ship uh, is a huge vat filled with 25 tons of hot petroleum jelly that hardens to resemble a huge chunk, sort of, of cheese. Now, Barney's used this symbol since his drawing restraint in 1988. So he repeatedly uses this motif. This just happens to be the biggest one yet. Um, and the film focuses on Barney and Bjork um, as the Occidental guest. Lots of people have created some critique based on the sort of colonizing by, by Barney um, of, uh, of Asia. Anyhow, the Occidental guests get on board the ship and undergo an elaborate sort of preparation for a Shinto wedding. But a thunderstorm is gathering. The storm worsens, and the petroleum jelly leaks from the top down into the bottom, where Barney and Bjork very slowly... Has anybody seen this film? Okay, good. I saw it in September. Very slowly, very solemnly. This film is two hours and 43 minutes long. Very slowly, very solemnly go at each other with flensing knives to sort of slice away their lower body parts. Flensing knives are those kinds of sharp knives that cut sushi. In the end, they sort of mutate into creatures with whale-like tails. And the film ends with scenes of ice flows and also whales as the whaling ship sort of goes off into the sunset. And Bjork's voice repeating the phrase, from the moment of commitment, nature conspires to help you. Now, not surprisingly, Matthew Barney has a few detractors who dismiss this stuff as mere spectacle, madness, um, and deride his art world celebrity. This was something that came out in the book review just a few weeks ago. Um, Matthew Barney is too poetic, he's too weird, he's too gooey, he's too icky, he's just simply too audacious. Okay, I, I mean, I can't really go anywhere with that. Um, I think what's more interesting is his fandom. And especially the fandom organized by Cremaster Fanatic. Um, again, websites galore. Uh, and also a gallery show that they exhibited, uh, that they organized last spring, uh, the Matthew Barney Show um, at a Brooklyn, New York gallery, which featured over 30 different Matthew Barney tributes with folks wearing I Heart Matthew Barney buttons. Um, and folks making Matthew Barney sort of Cremaster 4 figures out of Legos. That's what we see over there on the right. Um, and, and I love this here, you know, coming up out of an escalator wearing you know, a gigantic stuffy on her head, um, like something out of Cremaster 3. Lots of Vaseline videos. And lots of the kind of fan art of Matthew Barney photographs um, turned into two-dimensional work.
It also featured some interesting video spoofs, like Cree Mistress 6, the centered polenta. <laughs> and yeah, all of these are available online, and you can watch them. Um, the artist here, uh, Carolyn Sordar, is a real artist. Uh, and, and I love this one. It's quite long, actually. The mythic hero who features ice cream cones on his head for horns, um, and as you can see, a crown made out of radishes. Um, he is attended by this bevy of, of lovely female attendants who solemnly install a birthday cake on his butt. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really, it's odd. Okay, and then I just came across this one called Drawing Complaint, Memoirs of a Bjork Geisha, a geisha um, with Tina Takamoto and Jennifer Parker. Um, and what they did was they, they made this video of themselves sort of imitating Drawing uh, Restraint 9 at the opening of Drawing Restraint 9 and a Barney exhibit at San Francisco Museum of Contemporary Art this summer. So they sort of, they must have had invitations, but they went into the, into the gallery and performed this piece. It's a six and a half minute video and it's on YouTube. Um, and did this sort of guerrilla performance um, during, the, during the opening in which they reenact scenes from Drawing Restraint 9 and kind of go at each other with chopsticks <laughs> in the final moments of their video. All of it to a particular uh, song by Bjork that is also in the in the um, in drawing in drawing restraint nine. Um, I think what this fandom shows us is, you know, whenever uh, you have reached the the height of celebrity in America, you also reach the height of popular culture caricature. This is certainly about attention. Matthew Barney is obviously a celebrity. He is clearly a legend. Kimmelman in 1999 would write. Barney is ultimately the most important American artist of his generation because his imagination is so big. So it's not just because Barney is so smart about product placement and image management, but because his products, his artwork, his drawings and restraint series, his Cremaster series, are so ambiguous and complex and contradictory and visually compelling absolutely in keeping with other artists who have sustained our interest over the past century, ranging from Van Gogh to Pollock to Warhol. Now, Barney's art repeatedly centers on two themes, creativity and celebrity. As he notes, being in fashion was useful for me because I know how people can be used up, how they're hot, and then they become yesterday's news. I find this curious, the way energy dissipates from a source through that kind of exploitation, and I want to figure out how to make it into art. Thank you.